The results are in. In the Sunday Times Rich List for 2020, here are the top three. Number three, David and Simon Rubin, £16 billion. Number two, more billionaire brothers, Sri and Gopi Hinduja, also £16 billion. But we do have a new one, number one. For the first time, it's a James Dyson. More on him later. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. My name's Robert Watts. I'm the compiler of the Sunday Times Rich List. For the third year in a row, this man is the richest in the world. She's rich and getting very much richer. Britain's first self-made woman billionaire. The sums involved in her wealth are enough to bring water to several pairs of eyes. So it might take a bit of luck on the lottery for any of us to make the list. You're listening to Stories of Our Times, from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today... Inside the Sunday Times Rich List. Philip Beresford was working for another newspaper and he devised the idea of trying to put numbers on asset wealth of the wealthiest people in the country. And he set about for some months trying to put a list of 50 names together. It was intended to be an annual guide to the rising and falling fortunes of the super rich in Britain. So one of the first calls to those reporters raising this idea of a rich list was to Robert Maxwell, the great newspaper proprietor, a nervous business reporter, rang him up and said, Mr. Maxwell, Mr. Maxwell, we are compiling a list of what we believe to be the wealthiest people in the UK. We believe from what we can see, you are worth £500 million. A lot of money in the mid 80s, of course. Uh, a lot of money today. Anyway, there was silence at the end of the line. And then suddenly, this enormous guffaw and this roar of approval. Brilliant, said Maxwell. Stick me down for a billion. <laughs> but not everyone wants to be questioned about their wealth. The Duke of Devonshire was absolutely outraged and by the end of the day the inaugural rich list as it would have been was killed because the duke called up the proprietor of that newspaper and warned him what was afoot and mr beresford was told the rich list wouldn't be going ahead it wasn't until the late 80s when philip beresford moved to the sunday times that the rich list finally got commissioned and that was the first edition. Just 50 names at the start and gradually it grew for 250 from there to 500 in 1997. And for the last few years, we've been doing 1,000. We call ourselves the definitive guide to UK wealth. The 11th Duke of Devonshire was aghast at the idea. But these days, are the super rich more open to talking about their wealth? 
about a third of the people on the list want to talk to us. They know we're going to have a crack at trying to assess their wealth. And so they want that number to be right. Now, there's certain challenges as a journalist to those sorts of relationships. We have to be very, very careful to make sure that what we're presenting is correct, is right. There's a certain cachet to it. And there are people who ring us up year in, year out and try and talk themselves onto the list. Really? Do people inflate their value? Very much so. I've heard all sorts of reasons why they do that. I've certainly had people on the list disgraced that someone that they're at school with is four or five places above them in the list and trying, <laughs> trying to assure me that they should be. For some people, it is a real badge of honour, the list that we produce, and particularly if they've come from very humble backgrounds. This is their life's work that we're talking about. They're quietly building, accumulating this wealth, growing these businesses over the years. And they don't necessarily want to sing and dance about it. They just want it registered that this is what I've done with my life. And what about, there must be people who are slightly worried about things like the tax man. Are there people who don't want you to know how rich they are? Absolutely. There are many people on the list who would like us to stop doing what we're doing. We take the view that an important part of a functioning democracy is knowing where wealth lies, where it is being accumulated. And there are certainly people who we're aware of who've had contact from the tax man after um, the publication of the rich list. Really? We're also aware of our work being used by divorce lawyers. I've spoken to people who work in the charity world who find our work very useful when approaching high net individuals. And when people aren't cooperative, how do you calculate what they must be worth? It is a jigsaw puzzle, but there's some that are very obvious and that are based on very clear public documents that you could do, I could do, anyone listening to this podcast could do, hmm. where you're looking at shareholdings in public companies that are listed on the stock market. You can see how many shares they own. You can see what the share price is. You can come to a valuation of their stake and then you can look at what they will have had in dividends in recent years. We look at identifiable wealth. These are conservative estimates on what we can see. And then as well as the public companies, which with shares on the stock market, a lot of what I do is valuing private companies. So for example, if you've got a business that makes a profit of £10 million, depending on what sector it's in, it's probably would attract a value of 10 times its profits. And then we spend a lot of time looking at the balance sheet, looking at the accounts. It's a strange mix, this occupation, because I think 90% of it is a very slow, steady tread through the accounts of companies filed at companies' house. And then about 10% of it is these extraordinary conversations with these people when they're showing you eye-watering balances on their smartphone. Compiling the Sunday Times Rich List is a year-long operation, but in February, with the publishing date looming, the stock market suddenly crashed, spooked by coronavirus. It has been another extraordinary day. Stock markets opened in a state of high anxiety. Sparked sharp falls on stock markets for a second day running. The coronavirus pandemic will cause the worst global economic fallout since the Great Depression almost a century ago. This has been the hardest year to compile the Sunday Times Rich List. It's never been as tricky as this. I think the problem that we really faced was the timing of the shutdown and the stock market crash that happened just as 
I was dotting the I's and crossing the T's on about 800 of the thousand valuations. I had to revalue hundreds of people and obviously very, very quickly. Often the people I would usually talk to and have a conversation with about what they think their business is worth. I can think of several of them who were saying to me, I honestly couldn't tell you what this business is worth anymore. What do you think, Robert? I mean, some of us, you know, if we were trying to value our flat or our house at the moment, it's not straightforward. A lot of business activity has just stopped and we don't know how long it's going to stop for. So it was a challenge in terms of the timing. But there was also a sort of deeper, almost more philosophical question as to, well, hang on, what are these businesses worth? Are there some you already predict have taken a massive hit? Yes, we would um, expect about half of our billionaires have lost money this year. And it's very clear to see the pain of people like Sir Jim Radcliffe, who topped the Sunday Times Rich List only two years ago. Quite a good example is someone like Lord Lloyd Webber, the composer and West End impresario. His theatres have been shut and will be shut indefinitely. Now, people I talk to in the West End are now expecting it to be September, October at the earliest before theatres are open. And as a result, all that profit that he would have had that year won't happen. Is he still sitting on enormous eye-watering wealth to most of us? Yes, he is. But unquestionably, he's worse off than he was before COVID landed. Is there a sense that these people might recover in a year or two? Or is this something which is probably going to set them back for some time? Well, that's, that's, you raise a really, really good point. We just don't know. The challenge for us this year with the Rich List was to produce valuations based on the day we were coming out, May the 17th. None of us really know the future path of coronavirus and our economy. I think there is a very, very good chance that some of the big fallers we've seen this year, Stelios, entrepreneur who set up EasyJet, Philip Meeson and his holiday group, and Richard Branson, those are people who have taken a disproportionate hit compared with others. And that's, I think, one of the values of the rich list. Beyond the big picture of the economy, it gives us a sense of what areas are growing and which areas are struggling and for which the outlook is bleaker. So at a time like this, what does the rich list tell us about where we are as a country? I think the big change for the Sunday Times Rich List since 1989, if you pick up that yellowing inaugural copy, and there are just a few left that we're aware of, it almost looks like a rogues gallery of white, mostly elderly men, earls, dukes, captains of just a few industries, manufacturing, finance, and property. Whereas it's become a much more diverse ecosystem, a lot more Asian talent, a lot more women entrepreneurs, a lot of people making money in all sorts of different ways. Yes, there's property there. Yes, there's hedge fund. Yes, there's private equity. There are people selling eggs. Really? Eggs, petrol stations. Really? Soft toys. Yes, it's become incredibly diverse and often the internet's a big part of that is that it's been possible for businesses that would have before the internet would have been pretty small or local businesses are now able to become global players i think it is a more positive document in a way it's showing a real march of self-made entrepreneurial talent and often these people and that's the thing that i find most interesting of all to be honest is not quite the numbers 
and the balance sheets and the profits and loss. It's what motivates these people. Because I don't know about you, but if I had a slither of the money wealth that these people have, I'm not sure you'd get me off the sun loungers. I, I think after lockdown, I'm not sure a sun lounger is <laughs> sitting still anywhere. Sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> That's a very, very good point. I'm often very interested in what makes these people tick. Why do they keep going? What is it that's driving them on? And that I find generally fascinating. So in the glamorous world of vacuum cleaners, we're talking about a quantum leap with the G-force, are we? Oh, yes. It's the first change since the vacuum cleaner was introduced in 1901. We've got rid of the bag and the filter with a cycling. In the coveted number one spot this year is Sir James Dyson, famous for the bagless vacuum cleaner. He is typical of those people who just don't stop. He's of an age now where a lot of people would be slowing down, but he remains fascinated by artificial intelligence. He remains fascinated by robotics. He is driven by continuing to try and crack these problems. And interestingly, this is a man who has spent and lost effectively £500 million on trying to crack the electric car. He worked on that project for four years. Um, He tried, he failed. Now, I think this is a justification for this great wealth. Would you want your taxpayers' money being chanced on developing electric cars? Or are you happier with a billionaire trying his hand, rolling the dice? I certainly think that's a better use of his money than, than, than money that could be going on schools and hospitals. He is typical of what we see in terms of someone who's comes from an unexceptional background and is prepared to take risk. I often say with rich listers that they're often a mixture of chances, risk takers, opportunists. They're not the people who are slow and stable and steady and reliable. They're often the people who are prepared to gamble, to chance their arm. And he certainly did with his electric cars. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm David Baddiel. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew. I'm Saeeda Varsi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. Lots of people talk about us, and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, we are going to go there. I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew, go there. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Who are the other surprises this year? 
I enjoyed seeing Rihanna for the first time. We weren't aware she was living in London until last summer. Will we have anyone who we are confident is in the UK? And we also count UK people who are overseas, expats. And we became aware last summer that she was here. And her wealth, actually, the bulk of it is not accounted for by her music, but is accounted for her tie-up with LVMH, the big fashion giant, and the cosmetics and fashion businesses that she is assiduously building. Bernardo, no, he is a genius. He knows what he's doing. He's been doing it for a very long time. So to have him believe in me um, beyond doing a beauty line. We searched for a while for a musician billionaire in the UK. And for a long time, we thought Paul McCartney would be the first to get there. He also wondered, would Andrew Lloyd Webber get there? How close are they? Uh, Paul McCartney at 800 million. Andrew Lloyd Webber also 800 million. So, yes, Rihanna has a little bit of catching up to do, you might say, but she is only 32. How, how much is she on? Four, six, eight this year she debuts at. It will be interesting to see, won't it? Will she continue to think London is for her or uh, will we lose her? But uh, she's another great example of how increasingly we're seeing self-made talent, often with pretty humble roots, often with quite a troubled start in life. And yet they manage to taste tremendous success and financial success later on in life. Do the challenges give them sort of almost an added determination? Yes, I think that's certainly true. Um, I think there's a love of independence, a love of, with a lot of these people, of wanting to be captain of their own ship. That's what drives them. But sometimes, I mean, it is extraordinary. I remember the first billionaire I met... I went to meet him at a penthouse in London that he owns and went up to the top floor of this block. And I, I had a, this Tatty's journalist satchel with me. I put it on the table, this huge table, boardroom-sized table. And he looked at me anxiously. And I said, I said oh, you, are you all right? I said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just terribly superstitious. Would it be all right if you put it on the floor oh. and I thought I'll throw it out the window if you want it's, it's absolutely <laughs> fine but he he over the, he, very anxious very awkward and over the next hour he described vividly starting out in life and effectively being bullied at um, his apprentice job in London and he talked about buying a jacket with his first paycheck and someone he worked with had deliberately poured acid over it Oh, God. And this man is well into middle age now, and yet he described it vividly. It hasn't been forgotten. And the pain, it hasn't been forgotten. And often there are these experiences early in these people's lives that are still driving them on, making them hungry for it. And he later said, yes, I'm worth this, this amount of money, but it could all disappear. Could it really? I don't think so. But he, he seems to think it will, so... He continues to work ferociously hard. I'm often asked, are these people happy? Does great wealth make them sort of comfortable with life? Hmm. The reality is that there's a thousand people on this list. Some of these people do seem to be having a jolly good time. <laughs> you know, they're, living, they're living in great places. They've got lovely houses. And a lot of them, it feels as if the more they have, the more they have to worry about. I've met people who look 10, 15 years older than they should do, who are working ferociously hard. And you wonder, is this, are they in charge of this wealth? 
or is this wealth in charge of them? Is this empire that they've constructed, is that driving them? I mean, it seems a strange thing to say because surely they could just stop tomorrow. Couldn't they? they could all you know, sit on that sun lounger. But some of these people do get addicted to it and they feel they have to keep going relentlessly. I interviewed Warren Buffett when he was the richest man in the world some years ago. And I remember asking him if money made you happy, because you'd think if he was the richest man in the world, you'd probably know. <laughs> and he gave a great answer where he just sort of said, whatever you are beforehand, it just makes you more so, which I think probably applies. I think it's similar similar to alcohol, <laughs> whatever you are beforehand. An excess just makes you more so. The founder of Alibaba takes the view that uh, I think two million of asset wealth you need any more than that makes you unhappy. That's where the problems start. Do you think there is something about this moment and about coronavirus and lockdown and the way everyone's lives have sort of stopped that has made us reassess our relationship with wealth? I mean, do you get a sense that that's changing? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I, th I think this is a, a great period of reflection for us all about what we truly value in life. Some of the conversations I've had with people who particularly who have a richless valuation that hinges on a share price on the stock market, who've seen you know, the decimation of their business and having to furlough staff and even let many staff go. I think that's been a very um, salutary lesson for them. Does being super rich come with more responsibilities now? I think some people have got it right. I mean, if you look at the work that the guy who set up the, the house builder, Redrow, giving a series of grants to local communities to help them. And a lot of rich sisters have opened their pockets at this time to help pour money towards the NHS and help other worthy causes at this time, just when we our country needs them. But there are others who've done things which don't feel right to us. And there has been a lot of bad press for some of them. Well, I think that's absolutely right. And I think it doesn't sit well with a lot of us that people who often pride themselves on being self-made and standing on their own two feet are suddenly very keen to seek help from the taxpayer when they seemingly are worth a great deal of money. My normal day starts waking up quite early, maybe about five o'clock, uh, get my emails done in bed uh, generally before Joan wakes up. Then I try to keep up with the news because we, we've got one or two organisations that are doing global issues, so it's very important and I know what's going on in the world. Sir Richard Branson, yes, he did say very early on in the crisis that he was going to put $250 million into Virgin Group, which owns his stake in Virgin Atlantic, which was in a lot of trouble. But he also wanted a £500 million loan to support the airline. Now, this is a guy who's worth well north of three billion pounds. If you and I get into financial trouble, we ask for help, but we also realise that we might have to sell our assets. We might have to sell our house. We might have to sell the car or, or take that sort of step. And I think it wasn't hard to look at Sir Richard and realise, well, this is a guy who's made well north of 500 million pounds from his rising shares in Virgin Galactic, his space operation since October last year. Couldn't he just sell that stake down a bit? And in fact, that is, we find out in the last couple of days, just after the rich list went to press, we found out that's, that's now what he's going to do. Where does he place now? Has he fallen in the list? He has fallen. I mean, he was one, you know, from being the great poster boy for the rich list for many, for many years. Branson, who we had last year at uh, 
just over four billion pounds, falls to three point six two five billion this year, and that that's a, an astonishing amount of wealth. Now it is tied up in assets, that's true, but I think to many readers they'll be astonished that someone with that kind of wealth is is asking for money for taxpayer. And especially the fact that this is someone who hasn't personally paid UK income tax for 14 years. Even if you are pro-business, pro-enterprise, many people just won't find that very comfortable. The public backlash has been interesting, hasn't it? It's sort of, it does feel distinctly different to, to what's gone in the past. And it's really interesting that the Rich List is coming at a time where we're having national conversations about what really matters and what this period of lockdown has taught us. I mean, do you worry that people will be less interested in people's wealth or do you think it's exactly the distraction they need? <laughs> I think on the one hand, we know readers want a distraction and a lot of there are so many positive stories on the rich list. But there, there is a more serious side to this as well and why this is a very important time to do a rich list is that hundreds of these people touch all of our lives. These are our country's job creators, as well as our country's wealth creators. If these people are battered, bruised, wrecked, if their businesses are vulnerable and go under, we all suffer. If we are heading for this deep and rather bleak recession, do you think there'll still be an appetite for a rich list? Yes, I think for two reasons. I think firstly, that democratic accountability. Do you want to live in a country where people can become stupendously wealthy and no one to know anything about it. I think that is an important service that we do and we must continue doing. Typically, the, the Sunday Times Rich List edition is the biggest selling edition of the paper. We've been pipped by the old royal wedding over the years, but I would expect that would continue. In our British culture, We've got an admiration for people who want to work hard, get on. And a lot of people do find those stories inspiring of how they did it. And I think also the British characters has got some very, very interesting attitudes and hang-ups towards money. We're you know, quite interested in the finances of other people, but we're quite private about it ourselves. And that won't change. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Rob Watts, the compiler of the Sunday Times Rich List. You can read more of Rob's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer was Leona Hamid, the executive producer is Leo Hornack, and the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella, music by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you liked what you heard, do leave us a review. You can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and more. And in these uncertain times, you can keep up to date and well informed on the coronavirus and so much more with a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. Visit thetimes.co.uk slash subscribe to find out more. See you tomorrow. <laughs>